Cultured Hollywood for Smart People for Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019. I'm Nico. I'm your host, talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them on this 4th of July Eve. I say to you, my fellow patriots, good day. I don't know what the fuck that was. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes you wind me up and you let me go on uh, on a podcast and total gibberish comes out of my mouth. And that's what just happened. Good day. Good day, fellow patriots. What the hell, Nico? Um, look, man, we're talking movies, television, music, and so much more. As I just previously stated, the world of Hollywood, the world of popular culture. That's what's on the docket. Can't wait to get into it. Fourth uh, of July right around the corner, which means, as always, around this time of year, we are reflecting on the first half of of 2019 we are at about the halfway point just a little over the halfway point in this year-long race for pop culture supremacy and now is as good a time as ever to look back at the first six months of the year and reflect on the state of popular culture so that is what we are going to do in this opening segment and we begin with this story posted on variety.com that old trade publication, just this afternoon, titled Summer Box Office Meltdown, Why the Movie Business is Running Scared. Authors Rebecca Rubin and Brett Lang write, It wasn't supposed to be like this. Heading into the new year, box office analysts were bullish that 2019 would beat or at least match the record-breaking success of last season. Follow-ups to Avengers, Secret Life of Pets, and Godzilla, combined with reboots of storied franchises such as Men in Black and Shaft, would elevate ticket sales to new heights, theater owners and studio executives predicted. Alas, it was not meant to be. Midway through summer, things are looking decidedly bleak. Ticket sales are pacing 7% behind last year's popcorn season, according to Comscore, putting this year as a whole nearly 10% below the same frame in 2018. And now, film studios collectively lose their minds. Look, people, sometimes the correct answer is the simplest one. I think Sherlock Holmes said that. Uh, (laughs) Or some other detective. Maybe it was the local sheriff in my town. I don't know. Someone once told me the correct answer is often the most obvious one. Like, the world will slap you in the face with the answers to all of your problems. It has a way of doing that. The universe tells you the right answer. And one of the most befuddling things in life is when brilliant people, like successful and brilliant people, at the top of their crafts, don't listen to the most obvious answer. They don't understand when the universe is slapping them in the face. I'm not going to come on this podcast and hit the doomsday button. I am not going to threaten nuclear meltdown over some bad box office numbers, all right? Like, this is not the death of physical movie theaters. This is not the death of the film business. Everybody chill the hell out. It's a bad year. It's a bad year for blockbusters. Last year was a good year. 
The year before that was a bad year. The year before that was a so-so year. These things happen. Last year saw the release of two of the highest grossing movies of all time. Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War. Nothing has changed. Those are both Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. They remain the most popular movies in the country. It just so happens that Black Panther was a cultural phenomenon. Audiences embraced it. Critics embraced it. Hell, it was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Black Panther is an anomaly. It grossed $700 million last year. And it came out in February. We would be foolish to expect another performance like that in 2019. But hell, Avengers Endgame, the highest grossing movie of this year, blew Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War out of the water. So like this whole idea, this premise that audiences are no longer conditioned to go to physical movie theaters, that children treat cinemas like post offices, like Blockbuster, it's like, really? You go somewhere to watch Netflix? Like, is that how you think children think? Like, what's going on here? Like, obviously, within the next 20 to 30 years, movie theaters are going to be on their way out. Maybe even sooner than that. And it is no doubt that streaming media is the future of media. And I've talked about that time and time again on this podcast. And over time, there should be a steady decline a steady decline, not a sudden drop-off, but a steady decline in theater going. But people still go see movies that they feel compelled to see. The problem is, your Men in Black reboot and your Secret Life of Pets sequel and your X-Men sequel and your DC Cinematic Universe movies didn't speak to filmgoers in the way you thought they would. It happens. You made some shitty movies. Regroup and make better ones. Like, I was just talking to a recent high school graduate. Like, a a young kid. He's a few years younger than me, but a young kid the other day. He went to see the re-release of Avengers Endgame. So Avengers Endgame is right on the precipice. It is right on the fringe of passing Avatar for the highest grossing movie of all time worldwide. So in order to boost the numbers over that threshold, Marvel re-released Endgame last week with some bonus footage. And this young person, he is so obsessed with the Marvel Cinematic Universe that he went to see this re-release and he stuck around for all the bonus footage with bated breath. He stuck around for a preview of Spider-Man Homecoming, which comes out this week. Not Homecoming, I'm sorry. Spider-Man Far From Home comes out this week. Like, really? You couldn't wait 48 hours for the actual movie? You had to pay $12 for a preview of the movie? Fan engagement, and I mean like hardcore fan engagement, is stronger now than it's ever been. And by the way, I'm not just talking about multi-billion dollar franchises. The fifth highest grossing movie of the year to date is Jordan Peele's Us. Grossed $175 billion. 
R-rated horror movie. Totally original concept. Not a sequel, not a reboot, not a remake. Stars? I don't know. A cast of B to C list celebrities? Lapita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, Elizabeth Moss? This ain't Robert Downey Jr. we're talking about. Fifth highest grossing movie of the year. Performed very well with critics and audiences responded to it. Why? Because, for one, reviews matter. Rotten Tomato scores matter. But also, when audiences see the name Jordan Peele, they trust that whatever they're paying $12 for will be an experimental, compelling, scary, interesting work of art. And not just like 50-year-old, 60-year-old moviegoers. Young people. Yes, young people are actually leaving their home taking a break from their sixth rewatch of The Office on Netflix and paying $12 to see a movie in a physical theater. It happens. It's possible. This notion that young audiences are not conditioned to go to the movies anymore is just ridiculous. And I can only speak anecdotally on this, but it's absurd. They're going for the Marvel movies. They're going for the Jordan Peele movies. They're going for the DC movies. They're going for the Pixar movies. It just so happens that this specific combination of blockbusters is a pile of shit. The Godzilla sequel sucked. The Shaft remake sucked. The Men in Black reboot sucked. The X-Men sequel sucked. Those that did well were the movies that were actually good. John Wick Chapter 3, Toy Story 4. Avengers Endgame. I mean, the fact the fact that I'm looking back, I was I was sort of compiling a list. What are my favorite movies of 2019 so far? Let me read them for you. Here are my three favorite movies, the three best movies I've seen this year. Rolling Thunder Review, the Martin Scorsese Bob Dylan documentary on Netflix. Paddleton, the Mark Duplass, Ray Romano mumblecore movie on netflix high flying bird the steven soderbergh basketball movie shot entirely on an iphone on netflix that's the problem in a nutshell it's not an issue of medium it's an issue of quality to me that seems like an easy fix maybe i'm naive but it seems to me like if film studios want to find the next jordan peele They better start paying the next Jordan Peele to make whatever the hell he wants to make before Netflix and Amazon and Hulu pull the rug out from under them. I don't know. Just a thought. It's a bad year. It's a bad year for blockbusters. It's a bad year for movies. Like, I cannot remember a first six months that were this week in a very long time, if ever. Certainly not the last decade. Especially since, like, studios, I thought, were rejiggering their release schedules to even things out in January, February, March. Like, it used to be all the big-budget blockbusters come out in summertime, all of the Oscar bait movies, the high-quality films released in the fall, and then the dead zone is the beginning of the year, January, February, March. But I was under the impression that studios were adjusting to this. And filling in those dead spaces in the earlier months, like A Quiet Place, one of my favorite movies of last year, came out in, I think it was April 
Obviously, Get Out was released in March. Black Panther released in February. Uh, and I guess Captain Marvel came out this March. But I I just don't remember being this underwhelmed by the first half of the, the movie year in a very long time. So it's a bad year. But it's just a bad year. We're going to take our first break right now. I don't have a ton to discuss today. I will warn you, we're a little thin in the content department, but I will try my best. I will persevere valiantly for you, the loyal listener of this podcast. And of course, discuss the world of pop culture in great detail after this break. Stick around. I'll be right back. So sure, it's been a weak year for movies, but the good news is it's been an abnormally strong year for television. I just jotted down a list, and this was in the last 30 seconds. This is not a comprehensive list. This is just what popped into my mind as I was preparing for this segment. Here are some shows that made a mark this year. New debuts like Chernobyl, the rare HBO miniseries that becomes a national phenomenon. That never happens. Chernobyl was one of those shows. Russian Doll on Netflix. Fosse Verdon on FX. Big cast, Sam Rockwell, Michelle Williams, executive produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda about Bob Fosse. Have not seen it yet. I hear great things. What We Do in the Shadows. Also have not seen this. It's on FX based on the movie, the like mockumentary movie from a few years ago. I think it is. I haven't seen the movie or the television show, if I'm being honest. But I hear that it's just fantastic. Taika Waititi directed that movie. And I guess this sitcom is in the same vein it's about vampires, and I hear that it's fantastic. When They See Us, Ava DuVernay, Central Park 5 miniseries for Netflix. Euphoria on HBO, as I discussed last week. Really enjoyed that pilot. Look forward to what's coming next. A number of shows that returned that were critical hits in the past, and now they are back. Barry, I talked about at length on this podcast, I think the best show of the year just hit new highs this year that I was not ready for. Killing Eve, pretty good second season. Not as good as the first, but still a solid show that I enjoy quite much. Big Little Lies, Meryl Streep, on TV, whoa, Fleabag. I'll admit, I haven't watched Fleabag yet, but I have just heard the greatest things about Fleabag. On Amazon, I think they're only doing two seasons, right? This is, um, oh man, what's her name? She's the creator of Killing Eve, isn't she? Oh, shoot. Ah! Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. So she's like the star of Fleabag. And it's this show on Amazon. And it's like really short. There's like six episodes and there's two seasons and they're each like 20 minutes long, each episode. (laughs) And I just heard season two was the best thing made this year. I need to watch it. But again... You got Fleabag. Black Mirror came back for a stretch of episodes. Did not watch them yet. But, I mean, look, man. This is just... This goes to show you how much good TV there is. Like, every other name on this list, I'm like, yeah, I want to get around to it. Haven't gotten to it yet. And there are people online that are legitimately saying, like, oh, my God, you must watch Russian Doll. Oh, my God, you got to watch Fleabag. Oh, my God, you got to catch up on Big Little Lies. It's like, I don't have time. I have never seen this amount of enthusiasm for so many different television shows at the same time. It's truly remarkable. 
And then, of course, you have the final season of Game of Thrones, which was mixed, but I liked a lot of it. Veep ended with a phenomenal final season, and there were little shows like Catastrophe on Amazon Prime that ended with a great final season. So, again, this is not a comprehensive list, but that's where the talent is now. The talent has shifted to television, not because the medium is necessarily better, not because those writers and those filmmakers wouldn't want to work on two-hour feature films. It's just that Netflix, HBO, Amazon, they're the ones cashing the checks. As a matter of fact, I was explaining this to my brother a few weeks ago because he's not like a big pop culture guy, but all of a sudden he's like really into television. I just introduced him to Mad Men. I think he watched Breaking Bad for the first time about a year ago. Loves Better Call Saul now. Watched the first two seasons of The Wire. And he's really enthusiastic. I've talked to my brother more about filmmaking in the last like six months than I have for the last 23 years. It's crazy. (laughs) So all of a sudden, he's really into TV. And his contention is that the episodic format is just superior to the two-hour format. Like, you can just accomplish more on a character level on television because you have more time. So in that way, for those specific types of stories, television is the superior medium. That's what his claim is. And what I told him was like, maybe, maybe for certain stories, certainly for something like Mad Men, something like Breaking Bad, something like The Sopranos, but... I've never seen anything on TV as good as The Godfather. I've never seen anything on TV as good as Raging Bull, as good as Apocalypse Now, as good as Citizen Kane. I just haven't seen it. I'm not saying that it's not possible. I just haven't seen it yet. And that's on a character level as well. Like, I spent two and a half hours with Vito Corleone and Michael Corleone and Sonny Corleone and Fredo. And I got to know those people very well in two and a half hours in a limited number of scenes in a small amount of screen time. This is not a matter of length. This is not a matter of depth. You can tell compelling character stories in a short period of time. It just so happens that our best and brightest filmmakers are doing the best work on television because they're given more freedom to do so. That's all. But regardless, TV is flourishing now. So I wanted to review another television show that I just watched literally this morning because I was dying for content on this podcast and uh, my rundown was a bit short. So I want to review a show that just debuted this Sunday called The Loudest Voice. The Loudest Voice is a Showtime production. It stars Russell Crowe, Sienna Miller, Seth MacFarlane, and Naomi Watts. It performed not so great in the ratings, and it, of course, follows the life and career of Fox News founder Roger Ailes. I guess founder is not the, the word. Like, the, the, the uh, what is he? The CEO? The mind behind Fox News? It's the Roger Ailes story, The Loudest Voice. It's based on a book, also titled The Loudest Voice, by Gabriel Sherman, And it follows the rise of Fox News and uh, Roger Ailes' personal life in great detail, including accusations of sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, 
I was really looking forward to this show, mostly because like the talent is really good. Obviously, Russell Crowe on TV is a story. He's wearing a fat suit, and it looked like a transformative performance, and I am into transformative biographical performances. Tom McCarthy is one of the head writers behind the show. He is uh, an Oscar winner in his own right, wrote the, uh, what was that movie? Spotlight? Yeah, Spotlight, winner of Best Picture and Best Screenplay. So an Academy Award winner. The Station Agent is another one of his projects. He also wrote Up, but then again, he also wrote uh, The Cobbler, starring Adam Sandler. So a bit of a mixed bag, that Tom McCarthy. But he is one of the minds behind The Loudest Voice. And uh, yeah, this show's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's really bad. It's really bad. And I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but I'm going to, so indulge me. Because all of a sudden, I'm, I've found myself back in the political world. I took a break for a few years. I just wanted to zone out all of the White House drama and all of the election stuff. and Because it was just making me feel gross and I was no longer entertained by it. So you'll notice if you listen to the Nico show on any regular basis, I stopped doing the Trump segments and I stopped talking about politics in general. But the election is starting up again and America is once again going to be invested in our political process as uh, fair or unfair as it may or may not be. Um, so I have found myself thinking about this stuff again and thinking about Fox News and thinking about the media and thinking about what Roger Ailes devoted his entire life to, which was opinion-based journalism on a right-leaning news network. So, you know, I wanted to watch this show because I wanted to find out this story and I wanted to learn more about the man And uh, I didn't get that from the loudest voice. I got, if I'm being frank, a soulless, judgmental, exploitative hit job that does not even attempt empathy or nuance. And that just bothers me. Guys, call me old-fashioned, but that rubs me the wrong way. You know one of my favorite movies of all time? It's called Goodfellas. You ever seen it? Because I've seen it about a hundred times. It's about gangsters. And these gangsters do what gangsters often do. And that's murder people in gruesome fashion. The characters in Goodfellas, they kill a lot of people. And it's kind of disturbing. And it's very violent. I personally do not agree with killing people. I wouldn't do it myself. And if one of my friends asked me, hey, thinking about killing somebody, what do you think I should do? Well, I would strongly advise them not to kill anybody. I think it's wrong. But you want to know something about Goodfellas? Even when the main characters kill people, I still enjoy the movie. Because Martin Scorsese did not portray these gangsters as mustache-twirling villains, as pure forces of evil. They were real people. They were Jimmy Conway. They were Tommy DeVito. They were Henry Hill. And I like those guys. I want to spend more time with those guys. It's empathy. 
It's empathy. It's a fundamental principle of filmmaking. If you're a filmmaker that is incapable of sympathizing with your characters, you shouldn't be making films. Bottom line, end of story. And it pisses me off to no end. When a sanctimonious, morally superior writer or director takes on material about bad people, and rather than looking for a a way in, rather than looking for the humanity in these characters, they judge and they lecture. What the hell, man? What the hell? This is not what I signed up for. And you know what? It's especially wrong. It's bad form to begin with. It's bad filmmaking. It's bad art to begin with. But it's especially dicey when you're making a movie or a television show about a real person. It's especially dicey. And a person that died, what, two years ago? Roger Ailes' wife is still alive. And you are presenting an intimate portrayal of their life. And it's not pretty. It's really not pretty. And it's wrong, man. It's just wrong. I don't care who the guy is. I don't care how evil you perceive him to be. I don't care what he's accused of, the crimes that he's committed. Like, clearly, Roger Ailes, not a good guy. The sexual harassment allegations were credible. I do not doubt them for a second. I don't doubt the factual accuracy. Just like on a factual level, I don't doubt that many of the events portrayed in the TV show did, in fact, happen. But to make a show that turns Roger Ailes into a supervillain, to make a show that depicts the intimate details of his life with the broadest of brushes, it's just wrong. It's just wrong and it's gross. Like, if you don't care about your characters, I'm not saying you have to root for them. I'm not saying that you have to see them as good people. I'm just asking that you approach them with an ounce of humanity. I just want you to treat them as real people. Because if you don't see the humanity in Roger Ailes, how the hell is the audience supposed to see the humanity in Roger Ailes? Why would they watch? Why would they care? It was the same way I felt about Vice, the Adam McKay movie, the Dick Cheney Adam McKay movie. I thought that was a totally entertaining ride. I had a lot of fun in the movie theater. I laughed out loud many times. It moved. It was competently directed, competently written. But my God, that movie is propaganda. What am I supposed to feel about Vice? You want me to recommend it to people? Do you want me to watch it again? Like, the characters are not real. They are caricatures set in motion to articulate a specific political agenda, which is fine. It's just not filmmaking. The loudest voice is a worse version of Vice. It is Vice without the good direction, without the smart script, and without the compelling performances. It's just flat. It's not particularly funny. It's not particularly entertaining. It's loud. It's over the top. It's soap operatic. And the portrayal of Roger Ailes borders on irresponsible. Borders on immoral. I don't watch TV to judge people. I watch TV to see the world from someone else's point of view, to step into their shoes and understand them. 
What am I supposed to learn from the loudest voice? And like, I get it. I'm not saying you got to portray Roger Ailes as a hero. That's even worse. That's another form of propaganda. Tell the story as is, but explain why this shit is happening. I don't need to root. I just need to sympathize. If you watch the first episode of The Loudest Voice and you were put off by it, may I recommend, I believe debuting on HBO next month, the second season of Succession. If you have not watched the first season, please do so. It's so funny. Succession, also on a premium network, about similar material, is a fictionalized version of the Rupert Murdoch story. Rupert Murdoch, CEO, founder of News Corp, uh, the executive behind Fox News. The characters portrayed in Succession are fictionalized. They, they, They do not go by the Murdochs. They are not the Murdoch family but most agree that it is uh, supposed to be a takeoff on the Murdoch story. I mean, that show is just a television show, and it's about some wretched human beings, awful, awful people, but they're real. And look, I'm sure the writers of Succession are politically minded. I'm sure they have a keen awareness of what's going on in the world, and they have a lot to say about it, and the show does not shy away from some of those political truths. But they're also interested in these people, and they're interested in them as a family. These characters, although they are a dysfunctional family, they're dysfunctional in the way that most American families are dysfunctional, and the show portrays those moments. The family, the Roy family, is the patriarch um, portrayed in succession. They have Thanksgiving dinners together, and they have birthdays together, and they have a family wedding, and they fight and they wrestle like brothers and sisters often do. And they swear at each other a lot. And they don't love each other in the way that they should. But there's a lot of truth. There's a lot of humanity. And there's a lot to relate to. And the loudest voice just doesn't give you that. And so uh, I am sad to say I would not recommend a show that I was very excited to dig into. Um, it's just too bad. It's just too bad that this is what politics does to people. You know, I'm trying to remain above the fray. I'm doing my best to not let, like, the the issues of the world beat me down too much. I I just don't think Hollywood has responded uh, in the same way. I just think, man, people are so angry. Specifically those that make television and those that make movies and those that make music. They're so mad. And I guess we can debate the reasons why. They may be right. They may be wrong. Uh... But to just, like, abandon what you're good at because you're mad at who the president is? Like, I don't know. That just bothers me. Just, I could never see myself totally compromising artistically because I don't like who the president is. You know? But that's what, like, I I just saw Anthony Jeselnik did an interview. I think it was with either Variety or Vulture or The Hollywood Reporter or something. And he wrote that joke in his new special about dropping babies. And he said it was because he was embarrassed by other comics in the wake of the election in 2018. Um, Yeah, it's on Vulture. Let me just read specifically. This bit, essentially the bit is about how he enjoys dropping babies. 
And uh, it begins as this sort of misdirect. He's talking about how comedy shouldn't always be funny. It's about speaking truth to power. I'm sick and tired of this. And then it devolves into this just silly bit, this silly offensive bit. And uh, his response, what? so he's like, you wrote this joke. Uh, it, the joke starts with a misdirect about the political climate in the country that winds up being a story about dropping babies. Why did you structure it that way? And he responds, I was embarrassed by the way some of my friends reacted to the election. A lot of it was my comedian peers' reaction to Donald Trump. Twitter went from here's a joke to did you know the senator said? I had to mute half the people I follow. I am as liberal as they come, but as a comedian, I was like, this is revolting. It's comedy for the sake of verifying someone's opinion as opposed to making them laugh. And I thought, this is an opportunity. This was a way to not be like that Cheeto haired dot, dot, dot. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? What are you doing? You're embarrassing yourself. And I agree with them. I just agree with them. It, it just seems like those in Hollywood have restructured their entire livelihood to taking this guy down to the point of... of Serious artistic compromise. You know, like this show about Roger Ailes feels entirely like a reaction to Donald Trump and an attempt to vilify a guy and to tarnish his reputation as as uh, rightly or wrongly intentioned as they are. I'm not siding with Roger Ailes. I'm just looking for an ounce, a shred of humanity and empathy. I don't know. Politics drives people crazy. Everybody needs to settle down. All right. Uh, here's another break. When we return, a few more tidbits from the world of pop culture. Then I got to go. Stick around. It's cultured. So this Ryan Johnson trailer, Knives Out, debuted yesterday. Man, I love Ryan Johnson. I know there's probably going to be a subset of Twitter that like boycotts this movie because they're so mad about last Jedi. Those people are so wrong. They're so misguided. This trailer looked pretty fun. I am not exactly sure what it is with auteur pop filmmakers and like Agatha Christie stories. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about the who done it subgenre and, and like People like Matthew Vaughn and Ryan Johnson and even J.J. Abrams. I'm not sure he made a whodunit movie himself. But Knives Out looks, although not like a direct Agatha Christie adaptation, it looks to be in the style of Agatha Christie. Death on the Nile and uh, Murder on the Orient Express being her two most popular books. Look, it looked fun. It's a dynamite cast. I, I'm really into the... Uh, the the Jamie Lee Curtis renaissance that we're about to experience. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis is back in our lives, and I'm very happy about it. Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, Lakeith Stanfield, and Christopher Plummer, with cameos from Frank Oz and M. Emmett Walsh, according to Wikipedia. Knives Out. Uh, put it this way, I was not as, I guess, thrilled by the trailer as I thought I would be, the idea of a uh, of a Ryan Johnson murder mystery with some of the most interesting movie stars in Hollywood, I think, uh, sounded a lot better on paper than it did in execution. But we'll see. I want more movies like this. I think that's what I've been asking for. And we sort of hinted at it in the first segment. If you want to find 
the next Jordan Peele, if you want to find the next Ryan Johnson, you need to fund projects like this. You don't have to give them $100 million to make an Elton John biopic. You don't have to give them $200 million to make a Godzilla remake. Just give them 20 to $30 million. Let them make their weird uh, like genre pick. And it's not like a huge risk. Like That's where the great art lives in the 20 to $30 million range. And I'm afraid that we're sort of moving away from that. It feels like the industry has abandoned that model. Whereas Netflix and Amazon are embracing that model. Um, but this this looks like uh this looks like a movie that I'm gonna be into. I'm excited for Knives Out coming later this year. Please check out that trailer. It uh it looks pretty fun. It looks pretty fun. So Aaron Paul is trolling us, right? Is that what's happening here? Aaron Paul is just trolling us. So he tweeted out, him and Brian Cranston both tweeted out pictures of donkeys. The exact same donkey at the exact same time with uh, with the caption soon. So everybody assumed that it was going to be something Breaking Bad related. And then here's Aaron Paul again. Um... I guess, what was this? Yesterday? Tweets out this image. Him and Brian Cranston standing in a river together with the caption, even sooner. So everybody thinks this is the Breaking Bad movie. This is not happening. Put it this way, people. Like, if the Breaking Bad movie were actually in development, you wouldn't hear a fucking word about it. Mum's the word in AMC headquarters. There is no way they would allow this to leak out, especially on the star's Twitter page. He would not, they would roll this out with a big press release, media event, press conference. Like AMC would not let Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul take the legs out from this announcement. So this is going to be like some funny or die video or something. This is going to be a, maybe a commercial. Maybe Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston are shooting a commercial. That's more likely to me. This is not the Breaking Bad announcement. Now, from what I understand, that movie is happening. Aaron Paul, I guess, is going to be the star of this Breaking Bad sequel movie. And Brian Cranston has said that it is happening, but he has not seen a script yet. So who knows if he's involved or not. But this is a troll. And it's an effective troll. But it's a troll, people. I also still don't know where I stand on this movie idea. I got to be honest. Because I sort of have mixed reviews on the Breaking Bad finale as is. Like, I was not as enthusiastic about it as most people. And the one thing that I actually did like about it was how ambiguous the Jesse ending was. Him driving off. You don't know if he gets past the cops. You don't even know if he makes it off the compound. Like, I I thought that was a very fitting end to that character because it was the one time Jesse felt a sense of joy and optimism. He had just broken out of hell, and now the future is bright for the first time in the entire series. Um, and again, I didn't I didn't love the final shot with with Walter. I didn't love the resolution with the family. I didn't love how clean the ending was. But the one ambiguous element of it is now being thrown away. Um, in favor of a franchise extension, in favor of a, of a cash grab, that's what it seems like at least. You know, that's the one part that felt perfect to me. 
and now they're messing with it. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll watch it, and I'm sure it will be artfully done as always, because Better Call Saul is so good, and I have no doubt that this will be just as good, but still, I feel a little weird about it. It does not feel as natural a franchise extension as Better Call Saul does. Let's put it that way. Um, Is that it? Walking Dead ended? Netflix is losing the rights to The Office? Oh, that felt like a pretty big story. I saw somewhere, is this true? Warner Brothers had to buy back the rights to The Office. Warner Brothers is launching their own streaming service. Is it Warner Brothers or it's NBC Universal? No, it's Universal. Duh. Sorry. Uh, let me look this up here. Hold on just a second. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. The Office is leaving Netflix at the beginning of 2021. January 2021. It will be moving to the NBC Universal standalone streaming platform, which is soon to be announced. NBC had to buy back the rights to their own show from Netflix they bid $100 million for five years of The Office. No, sorry. $100 million a year for five years of The Office. That's $500 million total. Whoa. Look, in the long run, I don't think this is going to affect the Netflix business model all that much. I mean, it's a loss, but they have plenty of time between now and January 2021 to dream up five new hit TV shows and surely they'll have a bunch of hit new TV shows by the end of the year. I mean, Stranger Things debuts tomorrow. It's going to make a massive splash and there are plenty more Stranger Things where that came from. So, like, Netflix will be fine. I just think it's amazing, like, I, I guess it's amazing the the thirst that young audiences have for sitcoms. Especially since a lot of people thought sitcoms were on their way out, you know, and the the office is just like a traditional network sitcom was not like incredibly popular when it first premiered. Like it was a popular show and it was a critically acclaimed show and it did well at the Emmys and stuff. But like it wasn't Big Bang Theory. It wasn't Two and a Half Men. It wasn't Seinfeld. Now it seems to be bigger than all of those shows. Um, I, I just feel like, you know, Traditional TV, we should abandon the rules of traditional TV with caution. We should move very cautiously into this new era when every sitcom looks like Atlanta. It's dark. It's a little dramatic. It's not that funny. Um, it's serialized. It's not episodic. Like We should proceed with immense caution because I still feel like audiences are hungry for a show like Friends, a show like The Office, a show like Seinfeld, the numbers bore that out. Um, like Netflix felt like The Office was worth $90 million a year. Universal thinks that it's worth more than $90 million a year. Money talks. You know? So like as much as we love to talk about, oh, movies are changing and TV is changing. Yeah, the delivery system is changing, but the content is still pretty similar. We are hungry for the same stories that we were hungry for in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. A sitcom is still a sitcom. And I don't feel like that format will ever go away. Uh, but until then, it will be going away from Netflix at least. The Office uh, will expire January of 2021. 
All right, that is going to do it for this episode of Cultured. I love you so very, very much. Have a happy 4th of July holiday. Don't drink too much. Don't shoot off your thumb with a firecracker. Don't be a Jason Pierre Paul. Practice safe firecracking. And put down the sparklers for God's sakes. Enjoy the hot dog eating contest. I hate the 4th of July. I'll admit, I don't like it. I find it to be uh, just an exercise in stupidity. An excuse for adults to act stupidly. Oh, look at the flashy lights in the sky. Settle down. (laughs) Settle down. No one past the age of seven should enjoy the 4th of July. Like, seriously. No one past the age of seven should still marvel at the beauty of fireworks. Anyway, have a happy 4th anyway. Uh, And I will be back all throughout the week with more podcasts. Adam and I will be doing a movie hall of fame, I think around Saturday. The schedule has been moved around quite a bit, so count on it. Saturday, new movie hall of fame. Why is this a thing just premiered earlier today? We have two new podcasts debuting on the site this week. It's a huge week for TooManyThoughtsMedia.com. So please log on, tmt.media or toomanythoughtsmedia.com. We already debuted the new video game and nerd show, I guess nerd core show, Get Blurted. Get Blurted, hosted by our friend Malik, just debuted on the website this Monday. Check it out. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, or just listen on the website. If you're into video games and other nerd culture, um, as many of you, I'm sure, are. Check it out. Hosted by Malik. Every week on the website. Get blurted. And Nick Evangelista begins the F-Bomb podcast, the fantasy book of the month, this Friday. I think. I should have cleared this with him first. I think we're releasing Friday. <laughs> A roundtable of fantasy junkies cobbled together on Reddit will join Nick Evangelista each and every month for a discussion of fantasy literature. Please listen. Please subscribe. That is the Fantasy Book of the Month, also available on the website, toomanythoughtsmedia.com. Follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. It means the world. I will now play you out to... uh, <laughs> to a, a new single that just debuted this week by the god the god among men jeremy renner yes that's right jeremy renner is a recording artist and he just released the song heaven don't have a name which sorry bro I think you're a little off on that because i just checked my records and it turns out heaven indeed does have a name and that name is heaven But regardless, here's Jeremy Renner's (laughs) new new single, uh, and I will wish you adieu. Happy 4th, everybody. I'll talk to you next week. Let's get cultured. She's got voodoo that will make you believe. Oh, she... Taste like lipstick and tank array. 
All I remember, she grew up in Atlanta, but she moved to the Bay. An uptown beauty you can never escape. Heaven don't have a name.